Welcome to the Westside Gathering Podcast, and thanks for making the time to learn and grow with us. Here you'll find teaching from our live Sunday gatherings. After the message, we'll say a little more about our church and how you can connect. But for now, let's jump right in. Hey, we're going we're gonna to shift right now, and we've got someone else speaking today, which I'm very excited about. John Wayne is part of our church community, and it's great that over the course of a year, we can have people in our own church at times come and speak, sometimes guests from outside our church, but often within, which is such a gift. And so today, I'm going to invite John to come up, and he's going to continue our Eastertide series. We've been uh, walking through Eastertide, living in the wake of the resurrection, and uh, he's going to lean into this theme this week, which we've already highlighted a little bit, the idea of Christ's ascension. Uh, such an important piece in, the, in just the days after the resurrection, leading up to next week, uh, which we're celebrating Pentecost together. So John, uh, hey, thanks for being here today. I'll step away as you can come. Um, yeah, thanks for being here. Thanks for speaking. Thanks for, for you know, just teaching in this moment. We're so grateful, and I'm excited to, to sit and learn and uh, process. So, Thank you, David. Thanks for the invitation and to join you in, in this, uh, presenting this series. And uh, to, to just spend this time, I think it's been a wonderful series to spend this time, you know, not to just celebrate Easter, celebrate the resurrection of Christ, but to live in the wake of that, uh, to be fed in the wake of that by this series uh, following the lectionary and, and, and just living this time of, of Easter that, uh, that really is the time we live in, in in all times, living in the resurrection. So I'm, I'm excited to share with you this morning. Uh, I'm going to begin just by reading uh, from the, uh, the first text that's listed on, on the uh, list of texts from the lectionary that's on the church website, Acts 1. So if you want to join me there, you are welcome to turn there in your uh, Bible. It will also be on the, the screen as well. Uh, Acts 1, beginning of verse 1. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, and after his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse six, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, As they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While they were going, and they were gazing upward, sorry, while he was going, and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up to heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you unto heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Lord, we ask you to bless uh, this reading of, of Scripture, and we ask you to, uh, Lord, guide us in our exploration of it today. Uh, guide the words that come out of my mouth, Lord. Guide our ears uh, to hear what it is that you want to speak to us through this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Now, you may not have, have spent a lot of time thinking about the ascension. You, you may not have spent a lot of time focusing on this. This is a, a passage we see right at the beginning of, of Acts, and, and Luke, who wrote both Luke and Acts, he, he uh, speaks of the ascension at the end of his gospel, and he begins here with the ascension. But, you know, it's wedged in between uh, the resurrection, and we get distracted pretty quickly by Pentecost. And so we may say, well, why, why make a big deal? Why talk about the ascension? And, and on one hand, the answer might be obvious. Uh, well, it's, it's in scripture. It's part of this, uh, this holy season, this space where uh, Jesus is risen from the dead. We receive the gift of Pentecost and the ascension is, is wedged in here. Uh, it may just seem obvious because uh, someone uh, rose, ascended from the earth in front of people who are standing, staring, slack-jawed, going, what is happening here? Uh, so, so why pay some attention to it? Well, there may be some obvious reasons to do so. But it is obscured somewhat. D David mentioned the Feast of Ascension or Ascension Day uh, that was this last Thursday, May 13th. I suspect for many of us it, it came and passed without a lot of thought, without a lot of focused attention, certainly without the fanfare of, of Easter or, or even the, uh, you know, the often uh, references we have to Pentecost. And, and so we may just say, well, you know, the, the story moves on, right? We have the ascension and then it moves on fairly quickly to, uh, to Pentecost. Uh, and, you know, in, 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 uh, for many Christians, you know, they, they may hear, you know, the, the liturgical calendar may be in the background of their lives, of Christian culture, but, you know, we, we don't notice it so much. We don't pay attention. So why do that today, aside from maybe the obvious tie-in to the liturgical calendar? But I think there's, there's a few reasons to amplify this message. Uh, there's a few reasons to, uh, to invest ourselves more in the ascension. And I think one of them is simply the, the connection we see in Luke's writing between his gospel and the Acts of the Apostles, the section we read. And so we read here, Acts 1, I want to repeat verses 9 to 11. When he had heard this and they were watching, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Right Here's this, this pivotal scene. Here is the ascension. While he was going and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go to heaven. This reads a little bit like a previously on uh, from a serialized TV show, right? Because we have the previously, we see in, in Luke's gospel, uh, at the end of Luke's gospel, he writes, uh, then he went out, uh, led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. When he was blessing them, he withdrew from them and they were carried and, and was carried up into heaven and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they were continually in the temple praising God. So, so we have the ascension at the end of Luke's gospel and here maybe one of the reasons, you know, especially as we approach the book of Acts, one of the reasons it gets obscured is, well, this is the previously on. This is catching me up to the story. This is reminding me, you know, what's, what's happening here. But I think there's a little bit more than that, or it's a little more significant than we give it credit for. It, it acts as, as a hinge uh, between Luke and Acts. There's a close connection here. Luke, at the beginning of his gospel, in verse one, uh, he, he states his purpose, right? He's, he's gonna set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us. 
So Acts is a continuation of that. Luke has begun to set down this orderly account of the events, and and Acts is his continuation. Uh, The roots of the Acts of the Apostles, why do we have the Acts of the Apostles? Why Why did Luke write book two? We have it because of book one. Right? You have uh, The Empire Strikes Back because of A New Hope. You, you have these sequels because something's been established already. Right? And what's been established? Well, we have the Acts of the Apostles, but it's preceded by the Acts of Jesus. And N.T. Wright in his, his commentary on Acts talks about it. He says, you know, really, uh, the better name for Acts is you know, the Acts of Jesus too. That, that would be you know, the, more, uh, you know, the sequel to the Acts of Jesus. But it's important because it's recognizing the acts of the apostles are grounded and rooted in the acts of Christ, right? The, and, and we can see that, the basic format of these books, if we were to, to boil it down, and I'm not trying to be reductionist, but in the Gospel of Luke, right, among the other things Luke says at the beginning of the Gospel that he writes, one of the things is, here's the baptism of Jesus, the descent of the Spirit, and what follows, the ministry of Jesus in all of its wonderful facets, Well, what do we have in the Acts of the Apostles? And now I'm skipping ahead, but we have Pentecost. We have the descent of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what follows that? The wonderful ministry of the Apostles. Right, so we see these books. There's a a mirror happening here. And as Wright says, right, the Acts of the Apostles are the Acts of Jesus. And so Luke's report of the Ascension is a hinge between the Acts of Jesus and the early church's recapitulation of those acts. It's this hinge. They are connected to the acts of Jesus. They have no acts to perform. They have no acts of their own apart from what they are doing in imitation of Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? These are the acts of Jesus. And so the ascension, while briefly mentioned, plays this significant a hermeneutical role or a significant literary role. It, it helps us in our reading. We can read better the Acts of the Apostles recognizing it is distinctly connected. It has the same author as one of the Gospels. It's connected. It's a continuation. And these acts that are being performed are a repeat. They are done in, uh, under the lordship of Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit. They are the acts of King Jesus done by the people of God. And so Luke is telling this story in two parts. And it leads us to the question of, well, what does this mean for us? And I think here it's important to recognize, and, and this is, again, something that, that N.T. Wright in his, his brief uh, Acts for Everyone says right from the beginning, you have Luke's gospel, the Acts of Jesus. You have the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of Jesus too, right? And we are invited to participate in this. We are called to participate. And so this, this is important for us. This is this call, this invitation to participate in the acts of Jesus. And I think there's, there's two parts to this that, that the rest of this message I hope will flesh out and will be obvious. And one is to understand that the ascension helps us understand it punctuates what it means to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. It emphasizes the lordship of Christ 
So there's, I would say there's a theological aspect to this. It helps in our understanding. And we could go off into a bunch of different, uh, uh, I don't want to say tangents, dimensions of this to talk about what it means uh, in our teachings about Christ, what it means in our teachings about the Holy Spirit, what it means for the way we teach about the church, what it means for the doctrine of the Trinity. There's all these, these things we could talk about. And right now you're going, please, John, don't, right? And I won't, all right? But, but there's, it helps us understand. The reading is important because it helps us understand who is God, what is his story, how do we fit in the story of God. But it also, right, if it emphasizes and punctuates the lordship of Christ and all that that means, it also speaks to our responsibility as those living in the history of God's reign, living under the lordship of Christ. So there's this wedding of, of, of doctrine or theology and ethics that we see in Paul's writings that we need to take seriously, that when we are trying to understand Scripture, how it hangs together, what is the story God is telling, it also has implications for how we act. In, we live in a day where, where you know, we think of spirituality as kind of a lived experience, and it's you know, whatever you do is spiritual, and, and uh, it's authentic, authentic as long as it's new and coming out of you. That's not the spirituality of, of the New Testament, of the gospel. It's not the spirituality of the book of Acts. We are, with the early church, recapitulating the acts of Christ. And spirituality, then, is, is, is in many ways indistinct from morality in, in terms of a being about what people do, the actions they take. And our actions are guided and are responsible to the Lordship of Christ. So I think one of the things that the Ascension does is it helps us to have a richer theology and a richer response to theology. Uh, Karl Rahner, a Catholic theologian, uh, he made a comment in the, I think it was in the 60s, uh, and he said, you know, modern Christians, contemporary Christians, are at risk of being mere monotheists, right? They, they proclaim the oneness of God, uh, but they also proclaim the triune nature of God, that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But, but Rahner said, you know, we could probably pull out the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity. We could probably just take it out of, of everything because, and we'd see no difference because people don't live in light of the Trinity, right? It was a chastisement. It was a, it was a critique of contemporary Christians. Do you understand how your theology factors into your life, into morality? We're at risk of being mere monotheists. Scott McKnight, more recently, uh, has, has said, uh, you know, we're at risk actually of being mere soterists. We, we just focus soteriology, the study of salvation. Uh, we're at risk of just making Christianity only about getting saved. Here's a risk that we have. We, we narrow, we focus down to one point, and, and we don't recognize how all of these things band together. One of the beautiful things about the doctrine of the Trinity is actually it's the doctrine of salvation that helps flesh it out. Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers, when he talks about the economy of salvation built into it richly and following the pattern of the New Testament, is this exploration of how Father, Son, and Spirit are all active in salvation. But, but that's, you know, McKnight is, is saying, well, we're at risk of only talking about salvation, only, you know, pray the prayer, be saved, you're going to heaven. There's a richness I think he might be underselling it. Perhaps we're at risk of being mere crucifists, right? Is that a word? 
I'm not sure it is, all right? But, but you know, we only talk about the crucifixion. We only focus on the details of the suffering of Christ. I think we're at risk of that even with Easter. We, we you know, we'll talk about resurrection briefly and the joy of it, but we really want to go back to, maybe that's who we are, we really want to get in our inner self and, and just nurse our sufferings, right? But there's a rich story. If, if the story of Christianity ended at the crucifixion, well, we got a problem, right? There's a fullness. I think the ascension helps us to avoid some of these reductions. And so today, I, I hope it helps us to, to think through these things uh, maybe a little more fully than we have in the past, or maybe you've thought through these things really fully, so just please be kind and, and don't throw things. Um, but what is the ascension, right? Very plainly, uh, this is Jesus being taken up into heaven. In the text we see in verse 2, he's taken up to heaven. Uh, he's lifted up, and a cloud uh, took him out of their sight in verse 9. He's carried up into heaven, is the way Luke puts it in Luke 24. Right, so Jesus is taken up. Well, what is the ascension, right? We might ask the question, where did he go? That's where we can understand why the apostles are staring up and looking into heaven. And they're, they're you know, the two, I'm sorry, I'm having a little trouble with my, there we go. Uh, the two, you know, say, hey, what are you looking at? Well, I, I think I know what they're looking at, right? Somebody just left earth, right? But they're saying, well, what are you looking at? Why are you looking up into heaven? Uh, and we need to keep this in the context of our, right? He's promised, Matthew 28, uh, and remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So he cannot not have gone far away, right? He can't have gone away or far away. On the other hand, he was taken up. He went somewhere. So what do we do with this? Well, as Christians, we need to reject the idea of a distant God, a God who is far off, who every once in a while, you know, tinkers with his creation, steps back to check in on us, um, right? Because this is not who God has revealed himself to be. Colossians uh, chapter 1, this, this beautiful uh, poem uh, that Paul in, includes, Colossians 1.15, you may be familiar with this. Referring to Christ, he says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that you might come to have, uh, have first place in everything. Sorry, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of the cross. That is not a distant God. That is not a God who is far off. That is creator, sustainer, the God who holds all together, and redeemer. Deism is, is this idea of, well, let's explain everything in rational, scientific terms. Uh, it's a rejection of anything supernatural. Uh, the God, you know, God created, and we'll explain it as far as we can in, in, you know, what rationality and science will allow us, but he's indifferent. That's not the God revealed in Scripture. That's not the God we've sung to in worship. There's a strong emphasis on personal relationships. The attributes of God, the chief attribute of God, love. 
The story of scripture is all about God's covenant faithfulness, his trustworthiness. When we think of prayer, prayer is this relationship of trust. We may struggle at times feeling like we're, we're speaking to the ceiling, but that is not what prayer is revealed to be in scripture. And we bring these things together too when we pray our Father, right? Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Well, it's this relationship of trust with one who cares and loves us. Salvation itself. Uh, we have Paul in, in 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, salvation is this image of reconciliation offered there, right? Uh, in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself. So we have to strongly react against any kind of impersonal God, distant God, disengaged God. That is simply not the God revealed in scripture, not the God that the church has from the beginning worshiped. It's not the God that we know and pray to. And so we, we still stick with this question though, where did Jesus go? We, we might, it's great John, uh, he went somewhere, uh, we react against this impersonal God, but where did he go? And uh, this is where I think part of the help is the imagery of the cloud. Right? To Jewish people reading uh, this text, uh, to the Jews who were at the ascension, uh, the disciples observing this, that he disappeared into a cloud is significant. Right? This is the imagery we have from the Old Testament. God leading, if you look to Exodus 13, God leading the people of Israel out of Egypt after Pharaoh had let them go. Uh, a pillar of fire and a cloud. Right? The cloud is this image of the presence of God. In Exodus 40, uh, when they are constructing the tabernacle, this portable earthly dwelling place of Yahweh, their covenant God, right? then the cloud covered the tent in Exodus 40. We see the presence of God. Uh, even in Luke at the transfiguration, where again we see these, these two figures speaking to the, the few disciples that were with Christ, Right? But there's an appearance, uh, right? The glory of God has come down, and this image of a cloud is here. And out of the cloud, in Luke, 20, Luke 9, verse 35, then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. So, where did Jesus go? He went to a cloud. No. Uh, where did Jesus go? He went to God's presence. Right? He went to God's presence. Uh, and we, we struggle, and this is, this is where we can struggle sometimes sorting through the rationality of our age and the revelation of God. Because one of the things we'd struggle with is, well, listen, we're, we're probing the universe. We haven't found the heavens yet. Okay, well, you're not going to find it that way. <laughs> right? uh, what, we are, what we are talking about here is another place. Right? This is God's space. Uh, and uh, and uh, I mentioned N.T. right before, he has a book, Surprised by Hope, where he talks about uh, the hope of the Christian life. And a part of that is to talk about the ascension. And so when you talk about Christ going up to heaven, it's, it's not another place. He writes this in Surprised by Hope. The mystery of the ascension demands that we think that what is, to many today, almost unthinkable that when the Bible speaks of heaven and earth, it is not talking about two localities related to each other within the same space-time continuum or about a non-physical world contrasted with a physical one. Rather, we think about two different kinds of what we call space, two different kinds of what we call matter, and quite possibly, two different kinds of what we call time. 
So we need to think not in terms of, of a, a, a closed system universe that rationally makes sense to us. Uh, rather, we need to be thinking, uh, and this is probably where, uh, where uh, C.S. Lewis and his Chronicles of Narnia uh, helps us, imagining two worlds that could be related and interlock. Right? Uh, and Wright goes on, he says, but the generations that grew up knowing its way around Narnia don't know, uh, uh, sorry, does not usually know how to make the transition from a children's story to the real world of grown-up Christian devotion and theology. But what's that transition? It's to recognize that heaven is not, he says, a location within our cosmos of space, time, and matter, situated somewhere up in the sky. That's the question, why, why, what are you looking at? Why do you keep staring up into heaven? Right? Rather, it is this, uh, this space, God's space. And it's a space that is broken into our space in Christ, uh, into creation, I should say. It is a space uh, that we pray. When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We mean that God's will would be done perfectly in creation, the way that it is done in his space, in his presence, where Christ is. And so to conclude that thought, uh, Wright uh, puts it this way, what we are encouraged to grasp precisely through the ascension itself is that God's space and ours, heaven and earth in other words, are, though very different, not far away from one another. Right? It's important that as we pray, God's will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. We again don't mean some distant God far off. But we do mean that God's presence, that his will, will be lived out among us. Despite that we need to struggle against the corruption of sin, the rebellion that sin represents in our lives. So what does this mean? We could obviously spend a lot more time talking about God's space, creation, uh, the relation of heaven and earth, uh, but I wanna make uh, these, these two points clearly here. And one is, uh, is that uh, when Jesus was taken up into the presence of God, he's taken up into God's space. Here we see this recognition, this exaltation of Christ that the resurrection and the ascension together speak to this exaltation, speaks directly to his lordship. And this is evident if, if you are to read through the, the text that we have for today, it's evident in these texts, right? That, that when we talk about Jesus being taken up into, uh, into heaven, into the presence of, of God, we are speaking about his enthronement. We're speaking about his lordship. Now we see in the Old Testament, right, in, in Psalm 47 uh, and in Psalm 93, two of the texts, I'm just going to read a couple of verses from each. In Psalm 47, verses 2 and verse 8, it says, From the Lord, the Most High, uh, sorry, for the Lord, the Most High is awesome, a great king over all the earth. God is king over the nations, God sits on his holy throne. Uh, Psalm 93, verses 1 and 2, the Lord is king, he is robed in majesty, the Lord is robed, he is girded with strength. He has established the world, it will never be moved. Your throne is established from old, you are from everlasting. Now, the word here, Lord, and you might see in, in, your, in your Bible, uh, often when you see the word Lord in the Old Testament, it's all capitalized. Um, but it's, it's uh, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the Greek word there is kyrios or kyrios, right? And this is the word 
used in Psalm 47 and, and Psalm 93 that's translated Lord. It's the word that the, uh, that the disciples use when they ask their question of Jesus. Lord, Kyrie, is this the time when you will restore your kingdom to Israel? You may be familiar with this word. You may be familiar with it from the uh, Christian liturgy, the ancient Christian liturgy. Uh, Kyrie Eliason is uh, Lord, have mercy. Uh, found all over the place in ancient Christian liturgies. Uh, if you look in the Eastern tradition, you may be familiar with the Jesus prayer. Uh, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Right, but we see this short in the Lord, uh, sorry, uh, Kyrie Eliason, Lord, have mercy. You may be familiar with it because you're a person of a certain age and uh, YouTube lets you go back and listen to Mr. Mister and their hit Kyrie Right, Kyrie eleison, not carry a laser, but Kyrie eleison lays down the road that I must travel. Uh, right, there, there's, uh, you may be familiar from pop culture. If you're a basketball fan today, uh, you may be, he's not my favorite player, but Kyrie Irving, right? There's a, a, ver, a view, uh, sorry, a variation of, uh, of that name as well. But what does it mean here in the text? Well, you know, Lord, uh, you know, we may think of it as the Lord of the manor, uh, you know, a polite title of respect, uh, recognizing someone's authority. But used in scripture, uh, it designates, uh, it can be used to designate a divine being or one who is the very least decidedly more than human. And so this translation that we see in, in Psalm 47 and Psalm 93, uh, right, this is a translation of Yahweh, of what we call the tetragrammatron, what we see in English, Y-H-W-H, uh, right, this is Lord. And uh, in the Septuagint, which I mentioned, this, this Greek translation of the Old Testament, Kyrios is used to translate Yahweh 6,156 times, for those taking notes, 6,156 times. Uh, of the 6,823 times it's used in the Old Testament. So overwhelmingly, this is the word that is used, that was selected. Uh, and Alistair McGrath writes, the, the Greek word became accepted as the way of referring directly and specifically to the God who had revealed himself to Israel at Sinai and who had entered into a covenant relationship with his people on that occasion. Now we see in the New Testament here, again, at the Ascension, the apostles, they use that term. And it's used frequently and repeatedly to refer to Christ in the New Testament. And it's not haphazard. Right? McGrath goes on, he says, the historian Josephus tells us that the Jews refused to call the Roman emperor Kyrios because they regarded this name as reserved for God alone. Yet the writers of the New Testament had no hesitation in using this sacred name to refer to Jesus with all that this implied. And this is the name that we, that we see uh, used in reference to Jesus at the Ascension Day. And this is a part of where the assumption points us, right? This is a significant point, the lordship of Christ. Uh, and we can see this in the Christian tradition, the Te Deum, this ancient prayer. There's a stanza in it ref uh, referencing Christ that reads this. You, Christ, are the king of glory, the eternal son of the father. When you became man to set us free, you did not spurn the virgin's womb. You overcame the sting of death and opened the kingdom of heaven to all believers you are seated at God's right hand in glory. You, we believe that you will come and be our judge. Right here in the Christian tradition, we see this prayer, this acknowledgement, this recognition of the lordship of Christ, of his enthronement at the right hand of the Father. 
And this liturgy is grounded in scripture itself. Another passage that we have for today, Ephesians 1, 20 to 22. God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in, he- in the heavenly places. Here's the power that's at work. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and he has made him uh, the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So, so what does this mean? I, I wanna nail it down to, to three things that we can take away from this. The ascension punctuates the lordship of Jesus Christ. I'm not sure if I need to say much more than that. Uh, the, the passages we've been talking about, uh, the, the uh, liturgy I've referred to, right? Jesus is the king. He is the Lord. He is enthroned as such at the right hand of the Father. But again, he's not distant from us. F.F. Uh, Bruce, in his, in his commentary on Acts, writes, Christ is ascended, but his abiding presence and energy fill the whole book of Acts and the whole succeeding story of his people on earth. Right? He goes on to say, uh, his, his presence at God's right hand means that he is more effectually present with his people on earth all days, even unto the end of the age. And so, uh, again, with Luke, right, we have the lordship of Christ. Well, it's the acts of Christ that are the, the center of his gospel. It is the recapitulation of those acts by those living under his lordship that is the content of the book of Acts. And it is that which we are invited and called into as God's people. So it punctuates the lordship of Christ. But these mean, this means something then practically for us. The ascension reveals submission as our vocation. But I should probably say it reveals submission as our resisted vocation. Because submission, I'm not sure there's a more unpopular word today, Christian word or Christian teaching than submission. It's equated with weakness, passivity, helplessness, uh, patriarchy. Submission is seen negatively. Why should I submit to you? Why should you submit to me? Why should anybody submit to anybody? We have entitlements. We have rights. Yet submission is unavoidable. Uh, and, And you see this all through the Old Testament and the New Testament. This call to humble oneself, to submit oneself, to conform oneself to God. Uh, Right? This, This is, it's unavoidable. If we're going to obey God, then we are going to need to submit to him. This gets more difficult. That's, that's probably the easy part. We're called to submit to God. We can't please God without obeying him. We're also called to submit to those in authority. That's a tough one today. Uh, right? Why do we have to wear these masks? Why do we have to limit ourselves? Oh, the this this conspiracy is getting out of hand. Right? Sorry, I, I, I apologize, David. I shouldn't say stuff like that. Uh, right, but, but we are called in Scripture, not once, but repeatedly in 1 Peter 2, uh, in Titus 3, in Romans 13, to submit to earthly authorities, to rightly submit to earthly authorities. Now, is God's authority, is Christ Lord over all? Are we living in the history of God's reign? Absolutely no question. And he is calling us to submit to earthly authorities. To submit to earthly authorities against, who stand against him? Well, that's a fuller conversation. 
But I'm not sure we need to plant our flag at wearing masks and being limited in, in gatherings. What we do need to do is take seriously obedience to God in Christ to be responsible as the people of God. We're called to submit to one another. Ephesians chapter five, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's not so bad. But then we read on. Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is, we kind of get to the heart of this is unpopular. (laughs) This is embarrassing. I don't want to read these verses. I don't want to have to explain this. What do I do with these things? Let me say very briefly this. We, We can't imitate Christ without submission. So, you know, to just simply step into the place and say, well, this is outdated, this is, there's, a, there's a problem here, patriarchal society, everything. Well, hold on, right? Am I to deny my sisters in, in Christ the opportunity, the vocation of imitating Christ? But, but we're to submit to one another. No one's called to dominate Christ. So, so the other hand of this, if you think that the Bible is calling towards male domination, that is an absolute misreading and un, un, you, you cannot support that. Well, you can try. But you can't get to Christ, to imitating Christ, and have in some kind of, of domination in mind. Uh, as one of the, you know, all these videos come up on our feeds. I don't know what this is going to say about me that this comes up on my feed, but uh, MMA uh, fighters, you know, this one video came up, and it's an MMA fighter on the back of his shorts, of his trunks. I think it's John Jones. It says, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Well, the thing he was doing was choking a guy out and dropping him to the ground, right? Uh, You know, uh, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I'm not sure choking people out is what that verse is about. Right? Ah, I can go to a softer version. Steph Curry writes it on his shoes. And he's a dominant basketball player. But, but here's where I think this may really apply. I can do all things. Well, can I be Christ of Philippians 2? Can I live in the imitation of Christ that I see there, who, who though being equal to God, didn't consider equality something to be grasped, but took the lowest of low positions. And, and whatever else needs to be said and explored in the question of submission, and especially in the question of, of male-female relationships and marriage, and I'm certainly not saying there aren't things to discuss and explore there. There are. But what I want to say clearly is that we cannot imitate Christ. There is no godly imitation of Christ that is achieved through a worldly domination of others. There is no imitation of Christ that comes through that way. We need to let our uh, mind be that of Christ. And maybe that leads to the third uh, issue, and I'll just briefly speak to this, uh, is that the ascension reframes contemporary concerns about relevance. And that's one of the reasons we're embarrassed about submission, is because it's not popular. It's, it's not a, a good thing to stand behind in our culture. right? It means you're passive, you're not an active agent, it means you're letting someone else dominate you, Submission is a problem. But one of the big problems is that we are letting our culture tell us, right, that, that we need to, uh, you know, make our Christianity relevant, uh, that we need to, you know, kind of you know, fit in. Uh, 
And I think we're missing what we read in, in Ephesians 10, He has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What is happening in the acts of Jesus? What's happening in the acts of the apostles that recapitulate the acts of Jesus? Well, if, if we're living in the imitation of Christ, then we are reconciling ourselves and all things to him. The point of relevance isn't, you know, do people necessarily understand the words that we use in church or the references we make? They may not. And, and this isn't a place where we, you know, try to be misunderstood or difficult to understand. But like learning any language, right, there's a learning process and we submit to that. Right? God is reconciling the world to himself. It is his world. He is Lord over the universe. We are living in the history of God's reign. The ascension punctuates that point. It gives us a responsibility to submission. And it should help us reframe, right? The, the, a significant, uh, you know, seeker-sensitive type movement went through churches in the 80s, 90s, I mean, still today. But I think there's a calling for us to simply be the church, to be the people of God, to be reconciled to him and to be ministers of reconciliation. Let's, let's close uh, with, uh, in light of this to, with the tedium. Let's let that be our closing prayer. You, Christ, are the King of glory, the eternal Son of the Father. When you became man to set us free, you did not spurn the virgin's womb. You overcame the sting of death and opened the kingdom of heaven to all believers. You are seated at God's right hand in glory. We believe that you will come and be our judge. Lord, may you find us faithfully imitating you through our submission to God, to one another in God, and to the ruling authorities, all in the name of Christ, all done in the power of your spirit. This we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message helps guide you on your spiritual journey of discovering the life and message of Jesus. We update this podcast weekly, so why not hit subscribe and journey with us? Who are we? Westside Gathering is a local church in the West Island of Montreal. We're a simple community of faith where we want you to feel welcome, even if you're not into church or religion. We meet every Sunday, but you can also find smaller groups, environments, and resources for all ages between Sundays. Find out more at westsidegathering.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Vimeo. We'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, ask for help, or let us know how we can pray for you. If you'd like to contribute financially, just go to westsidegathering.com slash giving. Until next time, peace.